Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Fiona Harrison, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who recently joined us to discuss how vitamin C deficiency and exposure to toxins can impact glutamate uptake and clearance in the context of Alzheimer's disease, and how even small changes in neural signaling can be detected by monitoring EEG activity and correlated with performance in learning and memory tasks. Let's get right into it. First question, so given this possible direct link between the increasing abnormal epileptiform activity and memory impairments, are there any behaviors that are likely to be particularly sensitive to seizure phenotypes or to kyanic acid if tested experimentally? Yeah, so there are studies in patients that were cited earlier in the talk that used a number of of complex measures, um, you know, a lot of different test batteries. And they found sensitivity to epilepsy in some of those outputs, but not others. Of course, many of those tasks like clock drawing or, you know, serial subtractions are not necessarily relevant to everyday life in patients. But this does tend to suggest that different pathways or circuits impacted So in mice, you know, since we think that the epilepsy is driving the same pathways that are impacted early in disease, I think that many of the classic tests of learning and memory that are dependent on intact corticohippocampal circuits, you know, are implicated. So really anything that your mouse model um, has deficits in any way uh, might be accelerated by the additional um, epilepsy phenotype. So for us testing in young mice, the most important thing is probably not the specific task used, um, but that all of the correct control tasks are included. So we're controlling for activity and anxiety and, and you know motor deficits, for example, that helps us interpret the, the final, you know, the most important output that we're interested in. And because we were testing in young mice that really had pretty intact performance on most of these tasks, it's, it's uh, easy to get a ceiling effect and to not see your deficit. So it's essential to have tasks that you can adapt the protocols for in order to make harder. So for us, that was reversal learning in the water maze using, you know, cued and, and context dependent tasks and conditioned fear. Um, other tasks people use, you might want to, you know, decrease the amount of training or increase test delays, for example, anything that's going to prevent that ceiling effect and allow you to detect differences between your groups. Fantastic. Great answer. Here's a great question here. So you're saying that the EEG data reported in the APPP SEN one mice were made during the day, which is the light phase for the mice. Do you think you would have expected different results if you'd done your testing during their more active dark phase? Yeah, I, I do think we would see some different results, not not different enough to lead to alternate conclusions, but the magnitude of effects may vary. So what was interesting, you know, we when we had spontaneous deaths, it was not uh, in our studies, it was not immediately following the treatment. These mice died overnight when they're in the active phases. So uh, we were looking during our day or the, the, the mice's um, sleep cycle because we were, we did, you know, that's, that, that's sort of relevant to the clinical testing. And because we're not looking for seizures, we're looking for these more subtle measurements. So, um, we did take 24 hour or 48 hour recordings. So we have the ability to go through and, and look at those data. And there's definitely, it's worth looking at all of it. But I think we'd be answering slightly different experimental questions if we did that. So, you know, we chose in, in this data that I presented here, 
um, that hopefully will be out out soon. We wanted to look at this window immediately after the kinic acid administration, so we could see the increase in sensitivity to treatments over time. But there's certainly definitely a role for looking at 24-hour measurements and, and including that light-dark cycle in there as well. Fantastic. Question here about the decrease in survival. Was there any indication of kindling that could have caused that uh, the decrease in survival? Well, I mean, I think that's what it is. Yeah. So there is definitely some some deaths over time in any of these colonies. That's That's been known for a long time. Anyone that keeps colonies of any of these APP mutant animals knows that we do have you know spontaneous seizures. But the fact that we had so many more in these mice after kinic acid treatment. We also see the same thing when we decrease vitamin C level on top of the APPP. Someone mice were more likely to use mice. And I think that is a, a, a cumulative effect of small seizure events, which, which is kindling, it eventually leading to mortality. So yes, I do believe that that's what's happening here. Fantastic. All right, next question here. What do you think is the most pathophysiologically accurate transgenic mouse model of Alzheimer's disease? Oh. I mean, I assume that it's it's kind of depends on what you're looking at, but what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it 100% depends on what you're looking at. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And if I could answer that question, I would be, you know, far more advanced um, in life than I am now. So I we are using this model knowing that it is an imperfect model um, because it because it's a model and it's modeling the, the the pathophysiology that we are interested in, which right now is this, you know, um, slight altered EEG signal. And, you know, we're also interested, for example, in um, neuroinflammatory changes. And so we need plaques to exist so we can look at how microglia react um, during plaques. But that's not the same not the same as saying we have a mouse with Alzheimer's disease. We're modeling one facet of disease. So, you know, some people um, take the approach of putting in more mutations. So now we have tau, you know, tau pathology and amyloid pathology. Some people like to increase the mutation so you can see it in younger mice. Well, you know, you could also argue that, you know, Alzheimer's is a disease of aging. So if we're looking at these changes in mice that are not also undergoing normal age-related changes, is that relevant. Now we have a lot of new models with, you know, TREM2 variants or, you know, different um, gene changes that come from uh, rather from the spontaneous Alzheimer's disease rather than the familial inherited Alzheimer's disease. I think you can choose any model you want that suits your purpose. You just have to be really acutely aware of the weaknesses of, of the model. And there are weaknesses in all of these models. You know, we like to, I'll say joke in the lab that all mouse models are wrong because they all synthesize vitamin C. And so the entire oxidative environment is different to the human brain. So we know that that mice are not little humans. We just use them for the you know, for whatever it is we need out of them. So so in this case, we wanted the altered EEG changes. And so any of the models that have that would probably work for these types of studies. Um, but depending on what you're looking at, you may need to, to go with a different model. There is no good answer. It's a wonderful question. There's no good answer for that question. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a great answer to a really difficult question. I would like to ask about the absorption of vitamin C as part of the supplementation of mice, glucose, for example. Say that again, how, how the mice absorb it? Yeah, about the absorption of vit- vitamin C as a part of the supplementation. 
I'm not quite sure I understand the question, but so in, in our Gulo knockout mice, we know that the, the brain levels and the organ levels, you know, correlate strongly with what we give them. So they do absorb them. There is a different transporter in the intestine, the SVCT1, that's responsible for uptake of, of vitamin C. And so we know that they do absorb it readily. You can, you can max that out. You can replete those, um, you know, transporters. And so there's a limit to how much you can, you can get into the mouse. But, but if you give it to them in the diet, they do absorb it. Most rodent models, guinea pigs are the exception, but most rodent models would not have vitamin C in um, in their normal diet because you would not they they do not need it. So I'm not sure about the why glucose is um, glucose for example. I'm not quite sure what what that means. As far as I know, there's no interaction between glucose and vitamin C absorption because there is that specific transporter. So I'm not sure if that answers the question, but I hope so. Fantastic. Do you think these data and studies like it mean that people should start taking anti-epileptics as a preventative treatment for Alzheimer's disease? <laughs> so, you know, of course, it would be great to argue that there's a simple, you know, answer like that. But, it, you know, it's a really nuanced argument because, you know, first of all, there are patients that undergo, you know, sudden changes in cognition, and it's because of seizures. And when those are detected and you treat the seizures, they recover almost completely. So, you know, yes, there are cases where that, that is the case. But in terms of preventative, it may be that there are people that benefit, but I, we do not understand enough you know, to know who those people would be. We need to understand who would benefit from these. And then what are the correct types of anti-epileptics that would be um, beneficial? Because, of course, we also have side effects. We don't want to be, you know, constantly treating people with, with every drug we have. So, yes, I think in future there may be subgroups that benefit from some types of anti-epileptic medication. Right now, we certainly can't just start throwing that at people and hoping for the best. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.